Wish you weren't hearing an ad? Want to get the next episode even sooner? After the show, head to watchnebula.com slash modulus. You'll get access to our original podcasts ad-free and sooner than everyone else, plus exclusive originals and experimental shows from your favorite educational content creators. Best of all, you're helping support us to make even more amazing content. Check out watchnebula.com slash modulus. This is Modulus, the podcast hosted by me, Brian McManus. And me, Stephanie Salmon. In each episode, we take turns sharing the stories of people behind extraordinary science, engineering, and technological advancement. To inspire not only ourselves, but generations of inventors and history makers. In this episode, we hear from two experts with intimate understandings of the complex mind of the octopus. A mind so mysterious, it challenges our understanding of intelligence. Well, they're the most interesting mollusks in terms of behavior. No question. I had one octopus that was really interesting. Every morning I'd come in and she would be picking up rocks from the bottom and just kind of picking them up and then like dropping them. So they've got to live by their wits if they're going to survive at all. There's an entire unfamiliar world under the surface of Earth's oceans. It's filled with an unknown number of species in an underwater landscape that remains nearly 80% unmapped and unexplored. Yet even of the creatures we've discovered, there's so much we don't know. And one animal in particular leaves us captivated. They have three hearts, a complex nervous system, eight arms that carry within them two thirds of the animal's brain cells. And most interestingly of all, they're remarkably intelligent. The octopus is a creature well-known for its fascinating behavior, yet researchers struggle to qualify its intellect. I would guess it's been about 10 years that people have really taken them seriously. But I've been studying them for 40. This is University of Lethbridge professor Jennifer Mather, an expert in the behavior of cephalopod mollusks. That is, the octopus, squid, and cuttlefish. Dr. Mather, who recently served as the scientific advisor for the 2020 Netflix documentary, My Octopus Teacher, came to this area of study quite naturally. And I grew up on the seashore in Victoria, British Columbia. And my parents had a summer place outside Victoria, right on the water. So, I mean, what's more normal, you would go down to the seashore and look around and the tide goes out and you turn the rocks over and all that kind of stuff. And I ended up collecting shells. So it was sort of like, okay, I'm going to study mollusks. They're neat. And then I guess when I went to university, I really realized that it's not the shells that are interesting, but the animals inside. And I'm an old-fashioned scientist, I guess, in the sense that while I wanted to study the animals, I wasn't interested in the DNA and I wasn't interested in the circulatory system. I was interested in how the animal as a whole functioned. And I was wanting to zero in on what the animal was doing. And then in fourth year, I discovered animal behavior. And I went, that's it. That's what I want. And why the cephalopods? Well, they're the most interesting mollusks in terms of behavior. No question. That leads perfectly to my next question, which is what about the octopus in particular makes us think they're so intelligent? Well, 
pretty well every learning task you give them, they can do short-term, long-term, spatial memory, object perception. You know, the only one that they're not very good at is learning from one another, but they're solitary. But it's more than learning because learning is like, I give you this, you look at it, you decide what the proper choice is and you do it. They also go in for planning and planning is not so obvious. In fact, it's, it's, it's often very hard to figure out that an animal, animal's doing planning. And one of the famous examples is what, what's been called the coconut carrying octopus. So the octopus is going off to a place where there's no shelter and it takes these coconut halves with them. And when it wants to stop and rest, it picks them up and brings them up around it. That's just so obvious. It's amazing. But the octopuses are continually planning for the future investigating, I would describe them as extremely exploratory, sort of like a five-year-old kid, taking stuff apart, going off and feeling around at the landscape, just grabbing more information. I've met Jennifer several times at conferences in Seattle, and she actually came to the aquarium here about two years ago and visited when she was here. This is Bill Murphy. He's the senior aquarist in charge of the Northern Waters Gallery at the New England Aquarium in Boston. When you think about octopus experts, uh, that's kind of side to go, but she like studying for, oh my God, I don't know how many years. And like, she's done so many things, you know, so many things about them. No, it's just like, she came to me and then she's like, she was telling me the stuff we're talking, which it is. And she's like, where's your documentation on this? It's like, oh, I, I don't have documentation. I was like, I just do this. She's like, you need documentation. You need to start writing this stuff down because this is a great stuff. I'm like, ah, uh, yeah, no, I just, I just, I just do my thing. Bill's thing is far more than he lets on. As an aquarist, he has an incredibly deep knowledge of the animals in his care and of their day-to-day -day life and behaviors. For the past 16 years, his work at the New England Aquarium has revolved around animal husbandry, feeding, cleaning, care, maintenance, life support, and exhibit design, everything that goes into the care of the animals. And since his very first day there, he's worked with the aquarium's giant Pacific octopuses. They are individuals from the wild. They are collected from in British Columbia. And by the time we get them, they are already a year, year and a half old. Over the years, he's cared for about 15 different unrelated octopuses and named each and every one of them. Day in and day out, he bears witness to the incredible learning abilities and behaviors of the octopus that Jennifer has written at length about. Definitely seen them think things through very well. They adapt and they learn very quickly. Like the puzzle boxes we have have different locking mechanisms on the top, like a little slide latch or like a hook latch. That's a way for us to like mentally stimulate them. Put a live crab in, lock the box, and they have to figure out how to unlock it to get the food. The live crab is a great motivator for them because they love crabs. That's one of their you know, favorite meals. But once they learn it, it could take them like a little while to get the first time. Once they learn it, they just like, they know it instantly. So I have to like, we have three different locks. And I have to like change it up on them because once they learn it, they get bored with it. So like I have to like keep making it interesting for them. Octopuses are clever creatures. And sometimes they can seem downright mischievous in the way they just do what they want, including breaking out of their enclosures while in lab and aquarium captivity. We have a legendary story now of an escape that happened back in the 80s and blown out of proportion now. Like it's like become like urban legend, but in our old exhibit, it was kind of small and it had a lid on top. It was like a heavy lid that kind of weighed down so the octopus couldn't get out. Somehow the octopus found a gap, whether the lid was on tight enough or whatnot. And so it had escaped and then got out of its tank, across the floor and into another tank that was across the way from it. And the story, it really was just, it 
crawled out of the water across the tank, across the floor, and up into another tank where it had, uh, there's flounder in there, and the, the octopus actually hit all the flounder. That folktale has inspired some enhancements since, but it's an ever-evolving problem since every octopus seems to come up with their own ideas. They find ways. Like, no matter what you do, you can, it's so hard. I designed a holding tank uh, for them for quarantine when we get them, and I put a, made a lid on top. I kind of sealed it and made it like as, as great as I you know, thought I did. It was like, this is good. And the octopus escaped overnight. Like, I literally, like the next night, it escaped. It was like, I did everything I possibly could, I thought, and it found a hole. It found a way, and it did. And so we, when we designed the new exhibit that we have now for the Olympic Coast Marine Sanctuary, we've spent a lot of time designing the habitat for the octopus to have be very natural, give it crevices and give it everything it would feel like it needs to be safe in its own environment. And then we changed our security around at the top as well. Instead of having a heavy lid that's close to the water's edge, we have walls on the side that come up probably about four or five feet above the water and it has astroturf lining it because they can't get a grip on the astroturf. They can't suck onto the side of the surface. So that stops them from climbing up the walls and getting up and out. Because they can climb up pretty high. They can pull their own weight up pretty far and you'd be surprised. And so far it's worked. I'm, I'm never going to say everything's 100% because they are extremely clever and extremely bendable and flexible. Like They'll find a way. They're unbelievable. These stories are compelling because naturally we want to assign meaning to the behaviors of the octopus. But how aware of itself and its actions is the octopus? That gets into a far more philosophical question. Are octopuses conscious beings? Yeah, I've written a paper on in a journal called Animal Sentience. Yes, I think so. But then you have to ask what consciousness is. And that gets much, much tougher. It's not an easy question. Some of the things that make me think about what consciousness is and what consciousness is when I apply it to cephalopods is, do they self-monitor? Are they aware of their physical and, I suppose, psychological, what I'd call behavioral state? And I think they are self-aware. This is the kind of thing, by the way, that makes it very, very difficult to bring an animal into a lab and say, okay, do something, and from that I'll figure out what you think. I think they do self-monitor, and one of the things that makes me think that they do is that there's a few researchers, one of whom is Robin Crook, who are looking at pain and cephalopods. It's not an easy thing to study, but if an octopus has an arm injury, right, it self-monitors, protects, and doesn't use that arm. And I think that's self-awareness. The other thing that I haven't worked out yet is that clearly they do things that will be useful in the future. I don't know if they know that they're doing it so that they can use the information in the future. So do you see what I mean if I say, well, you're going grocery shopping and you get a steak for tonight and you know when you buy the steak, you know that you're doing it so that you will be able to use it, right? Well, the octopus does things that it will be able to use in the future. If it knows that it's doing it so that it will use it in the future. Yeah, I know what you mean. Can't get inside their head, but it feels compelling that they do those things. Yeah, because why would you do something like the coconut carrying octopus, right? Why would it pick up the coconut and clean it out and trundle off across the landscape with it if it didn't know in some sense 
that it might need it in the future. But I don't know. I really don't know. And I don't know how I could know. Not knowing how you could know is part of the difficulty of studying the octopus. The octopus's intelligence developed differently and independently of human intelligence. The most common ancestor humans and octopuses have is so far down the line that we have a chronologically closer ancestor with the first dinosaurs. Peter Godfrey Smith, author of Other Minds, The Octopus, The Sea, and The Deep Origins of Consciousness, once wrote that if we can connect with them as sentient beings, it's not because of a shared history, not because of kinship, but because evolution built minds twice over. You see, our big problem with knowing the development of intelligence is that we know it from the mammals, from the primates, our relatives. So we know that this particular set of conditions sets us up for being intelligent. But then if we have another model, the octopus, then we have to say, okay, these conditions, being part of a social group, they're not necessary for intelligence. So by having another model, we have a clearer view of ours. But the fascinating thing about it is that it takes scientists quite a while to think, oh, wait a minute, we should study this other one. Because they're so used to thinking, well, mammals are smart and we're smart. So what I find is there's been a huge reluctance to really sort of pick ourselves up and say, wait a minute, there are other models. And by the way, I get very, very tired of hearing that octopuses are alien intelligence. They're not. The octopus is good at being an octopus. People are good at being people. They live in different environments, but they're not alien. They work fine for the way they're supposed to work. And we work fine for the way we're supposed to work. We're not alien. In short, different animals are good at different things, and that makes developing some sort of intelligence scale difficult. The next best way to determine intelligence, then, is to see what an animal is capable of doing via tests in a lab and observations in the wild. One of the problems, of course, with octopuses, just like any other animal, if you want to know what they really can do, you have to go in the wild and study them. But then there's no control, and besides, they're in the middle of nowhere, so you learn a lot, but it's not systematic. If you bring them into the lab because you have an idea about what you want them to know, then you learn very specifically about that one thing. But you may miss an awful lot because you didn't give them the chance for serendipity. So actually, animal behavior research should be a combination of the two. In the field to find out what they're doing and how they're doing it, and in the lab to find out why. And I've been lucky enough to do both. I've read about studies where scientists are trying to measure or quantify octopus intelligence. And I've read that it's a very hard thing to do sometimes because of the octopus personalities. They have very, very strong personalities. And that can make a huge difference because imagine that you say, okay, I want to know what octopus insularis is like, what is the scope of its behavior. Well, it depends on which particular individual you have, what you find, because you can have shy octopuses or you can have highly reactive octopuses, or you can have very outgoing and curious and exploratory octopuses all in the same species. So it makes life difficult. So we tested them with the personality study, particularly the one that was most revealing. We had the octopus in the aquarium and we had a test tube brush brought it down and touched the side of the animal. 
And the reaction ranged all the way from grabbing the test tube brush, brush and trying to pull it out of us to jetting away and hiding in the corner and generating some ink to try to hide. So it's all the same species. They're just different from one another. But that makes them fun. They each have their own personality. So that kind of adds a challenging stuff because either they can be really engaging or they can be pretty standoffish. And when they're standoffish, it's a little more challenging because when they're hiding away from us, we offer them food, either from a distance, and they can take it from us, but they just never come over. But when they come over and interact with us, it allows us to examine them, take a look at how they're doing, and kind of interact with them and kind of gauge uh, the personality and their health that way. We try and feed them by hand. So we like that way they kind of get, gauge us. They're going to hang on us. They kind of suck on our arms and taste us and see who we are. And they kind of learn who we are that way too. So when we do interactions sometimes with guests, sometimes they can just taste this one person or sense something just like, uh-uh, and they just like jet water at that person. Sometimes they do it at me too. Like, like if I'm feeding with them and I'm not feeding them fast enough, they'll like squirt water at me. Sometimes it's a lot of water. They can soak you pretty well where you're like, all right, now I'm going to go change my pants and my shirt because you just doused me. I think it's hilarious. Uh, I love it when they do it to guests. Because, oh, I want an experience. And bam, you just got an experience. I've heard a lot of people speculate that octopuses are capable of play. Do you think that that's true? Well, yes, I did a research study on it. And it's not play in the sense that we think of it, social play, playing with other people. So what we set up, we figured that the animals were more likely to play if they were safe and bored. So we set up octopuses in an aquarium with a place to hide and nothing else. And then we got a pill bottle, put enough water in it that it floated at the surface. And sort of, you know, so the octopus is over here and the water's over here and the pill bottle's sort of moving back and forth. And one thing we hadn't really planned but worked out really well, the octopus was here and there was water intake for the aquarium here, which meant that the water sort of slowly came over towards the octopus. So we did this with six animals. The octopus shot a jet of water at it, which meant that it went back towards the water intake and it came back again. Now, once won't do for play, but one of them did this, I think it was 14 times, and one of them did it 21 times. It was the marine equivalent of bouncing the ball. I had one octopus that was really interesting. Every morning I'd come in and she would be picking up rocks from the bottom and just kind of picking them up and then like dropping them. And picking them up like, and dropping them. And I was almost like, what is this, like your morning workout? Because she was just like, pick up these big rocks, like lift them up and then like drop them to the ground again. And she did it like every morning. And I just picture that being her like morning routine, just kind of like lifting weights. That's the hard part. It's always, you know, it's, it's what we think and we, what we project on them, like what they're doing. These stories are particularly compelling in the animal kingdom because it's clear that an octopus has an independent understanding of its environment and interacts with it accordingly. Whereas so many animals seem to be geared mostly for basic survival. But what is it about the octopus that allowed it to become so intelligent, even while some distant relatives like snails and slugs seemingly weren't gifted with the same brilliance? This is something that bothers people because we as researchers have ended up focused on animals similar to us, mammals. And so the kind of the, the basic cognitive researcher said, well, mammals live long lives, right? They have to cope with social groups. So they have to learn who's what and who's doing where, or this kind of thing. But they're also relatively sheltered in the sense that they're dependent young and their parents are taking their mother 
take care of them. It doesn't work for octopuses. It just simply doesn't work. They're not social. They're not long-lived. They don't have any parental care. After the eggs hatch, the mother octopus dies. It seems to be the case that it's really very, very strong ecological pressure. So here you have animals that evolved, let's say, in the tropical seas. There's a very large set of potential predators. There's also a very large set of potential prey. So the octopus has to figure out all these things out. And the other thing is, of course, the classical mollusk has a shell and it can hide in the shell. And the cephalopods evolved away from having a shell. So somebody described them as a neat package of unprotected protein for predators. And so they've got to live by their wits if they're going to survive at all. The octopus is not a social creature. They live on their own from birth, since male octopuses gradually deteriorate and die a few weeks after mating, and female octopuses die shortly after laying strings of eggs and guarding them until they hatch. Even in captivity, though they don't mate them at the aquarium, they have a short lifespan. I don't have them for very long. I, if I'm lucky, I get two and a half years out of the lifespan out of them, which is unfortunate because it's, it's, they're such an amazing animal and such short-lived that it's, it's hard. For their short lives, these creatures leave a monumental impact on us. They continuously display behaviors that leave researchers and experts baffled and challenge us to reconsider our perceptions of intelligence. And despite their solitary nature, humans who've had the chance to work closely with them have experienced a fascinating social bond, that of one curious being connecting to another. And it's really just a hard thing to really describe. It is amazing to really just sit there and just interact with an octopus. You think about it like you have a bond with a dog, but also a dog lives for 8 to 20 years. Can you imagine if an octopus lived for 20 years? I think it would be a very different story, people's feelings and understandings of octopus. Because if you spend that much time with an animal like this, with its intelligence and its creativity and things like that, you're going to bond, you're going to learn, you're going to, even just for the short amount of time you're with it, you're touched by it. That sense is just something spectacular. Thank you for listening to this episode of Modulus. Let us know what you think of this podcast by tweeting us at, at ModulusMag, or if you're feeling generous, give us a rate and review. This podcast was brought to you by the minds and team behind YouTube's Real Engineering and Real Science. This episode was hosted by me, Stephanie Salmon, edited by Graham Harther, and produced and written by Erica Corder. Our music composer is Lee Rosevere. And thank you to our guests, Jennifer Mather and Bill Murphy, for sharing their stories with us and our listeners. If you'd like to listen to more of this podcast or others like it, go to watchnebula.com and be sure to subscribe. Until next time, thanks for listening.